Good morning. Good to see everybody. Started Job last week, and uh, Brandon said uh, he was thankful that it was a dark, dreary, rainy day. Well, today it's a sunny day and summer, and we're still going to look at Job. Today I have chapters 2 through 28, and I did not say verses. I said chapters. Uh, yes, I'm a bit frustrated by this, not because it's a challenge to me, But think about it, God devotes 40 precious chapters of his word to the single issue of suffering and evil in our world. And so let's acknowledge this morning that we are just skimming over something that's very important to God. In fact, I don't think there's another book in the whole world that deals with the depths of suffering like the book of Job. And if you were here last week, last, last week uh, Brandon looked at the why. Why do we suffer? Why is there evil? Why do bad things happen to good people? This week, we're going to look at the important question of how. How is it that we're to suffer? How is it that we're to endure and make it through those valleys, those tragedies, when life deals us those tough blows? I feel like I need to just say this at the outset. Um, I in no way feel qualified to speak on suffering. My, My experience in suffering has been real, but very limited. Some of you have gone through Massive amounts more of suffering than I have. Uh, The last chapter in in my text this morning is Job 28, which I'm not going to get to. But that whole chapter is on wisdom. It's a wisdom that's described as more precious than silver. It's more valuable than all the gold in the world. And God asks there, who can find it? Where does this wisdom dwell? Of course, God says, this wisdom is found in me. It dwells with me. And this wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But why in this chapter, in this book, in the book of Job, is is there a whole chapter on wisdom? Because it's the Jobs of the world, it's those who suffer who possess this wisdom. As we like to say around here, your suffering will either make you bitter or it'll make you better. And the better is you become wiser. And so I know right now in this room there's people that are far more wiser than me. That's why I'm glad I don't preach me. Uh, I preach God's word. So let's stand for the reading of God's word this morning. I don't know, did we get that on PowerPoint? There. I do have a Bible, so I can read it from mine, but I was going to do it actually from um, an easier translation, the New Living Translation, but that's okay. Um, Job chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. And if you have a Bible like mine, this is found on page 11. When three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and they traveled from their homes to comfort and to console him. Their names were Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, Zophar, the Namathite. 
And when they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. And wailing loudly, they tore their robes and they threw dust into the air over their heads to show their grief. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. Skipping down to chapter 4, then Eliphaz the Temanite replied to Job, Will you be patient and let me say a word? For who could keep from speaking out? In the past you have encouraged many people. You have strengthened those who are weak. Your words have supported those who are failing. You encourage those with shaky knees. But now when trouble strikes, you lose heart. You are terrified when it touches you. Doesn't your reverence for God give you confidence? Doesn't your life of integrity give you hope? Stop and consider this. Do the innocent die? And when have the upright been destroyed? My experience shows that those who plant trouble and cultivate evil will harvest the same. A breath from God destroys them. They vanish in a blast of his anger. The lion roars and the wildcat snarls. But the teeth of strong lions will be broken. The fierce lion will starve for lack of prey. And the cubs and the lioness will be scattered. This truth was given to me in a secret. As though it was whispered in my ear. It came to me in a disturbing dream at night when people are in a deep sleep. Fear gripped me. My bones trembled. And that's why you need to be wary of resting all your wisdom in a dream or a word from the Lord. You may be seated. Now, how is it that we are to suffer? That's the question that we're going to look at today. How is it that we make it through these, these seasons of intense pain? And, and here's what, um, what we read teaches us, is that we need each other. I need you. And that's un-American. I need you. We need each other. We need friends. We need the presence of friends. And I want us to know that this is not an insult to God because this is the way that God has made us. God made us as relational creatures. I mean, already going all the way back to Eden, you see that God creates a good and perfect world. And yet he makes a stunning admission. As he says, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then all of a sudden, he says, wait a second, something is not good here. And what's not good? Man to be alone. God not only made us for himself, but he also made us for each other. And that's why we need each other. We've been made to be known and to know others at the deepest level. To be loved and to love. That is why when we turn church into an event or into a building or into theatrics, stage, audience, we're missing it. The church is first and foremost intended to be family. Right now I would like all of us to think that we're not in a building and we're not at an event, but we're with our family in the family room. 
And I know all families are different and no family is perfect, but just the idea of family, I mean, family is, is supposed to be the safest place in the world. It's supposed to be the place where we are known to the bottom of who we are and yet we're loved unconditionally. Family is the place that's intended to be the place where we build each other up and where we encourage each other, where we have each other's backs, where we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. That's what the book of Job is is here for, not just to explain why we suffer, but how we are to suffer, how it is that we are to be a family, how it is that we are to weep with those who weep. And that's why I want us to look this morning at Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Now these guys get a ton of bad press, and much of it is deserved, as, as we will see. However, I want us to see this. These guys get off to an incredibly good start. I mean, look at chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. The moment they hear that Job is suffering, what do they do? They drop everything and they find him. They see him and all they can do is throw ashes and and, and dust in the air. And for seven days, seven days, they stop everything just to sit with Job in his pain. And the whole taking on of the dust and, 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 and sitting low with him is, is their way of keeping it real. You know, we, we like to hide our pain. We, we think we need to hide our trouble. But you need to know in the biblical world, you don't hide your hurt. You wear your hurt. You wear your pain through your sackcloth, through dust on your head, through your shirt torn, through your pa- face all painted with with charcoal to tell the world I hurt right now. And see, it's in this place of pain where we need friends who will be with us and will wear our pain with us. Do you have those kind of friends? Now this might rub some people the wrong way. Um, but I'm still going to say it anyway. Uh, generally speaking, I think the Jewish people are much better at doing pain than we are. Gabe had a classmate, one of his good friends actually, who spent all of his growing up years in a wheelchair, and last year he passed away. I mean, this kid was a special kid. His name was Nate. And... uh through his life and through his death, he really took a, a class that was very frag, fragmented and, and, and disunified and, and, and brought it together. He was Jewish. And immediately following his death for seven days, the family did not leave their home, but they arose early from morning to night No bathing, no prepping, no grooming. Even the mirrors were taken down from their house. They wore the same unkept clothes every single day. 
Dad had his shirt torn open over his heart to express his grief. They had special chairs that sat lower than the normal chairs to express the lowness of their heart. And during these seven days, their doors were open to visitors. At the entrance of the, the, their door was a bowl of water for visitors to do mikvah, to wash. And why would they do that? Because a house of mourning is a holy place. God says, I'm close to the brokenhearted. I draw near to those in pain. And then visitors are to enter quietly, take their seat next to the mourner, and say nothing until the the mourner addresses them first. The seven days of mourning is is practiced uh, called shiva. Shiva means seven. It goes all the way back to biblical times, Genesis 50, verse 10. Uh, Joseph mourned seven days over the death of his father. It's also rooted here in Job chapter 2. And when I read this, and I see this, and I experience it, how I long for us to be this kind of family, where we're more than an event, we're more than a Sunday morning service, but we're a family where this is the safest place in the world for people to hurt. Where we know how to rejoice with those who rejoice. We know how to weep with those who weep. Where we know how to be like Job's three friends to one another. Where we know how to be real with our pain instead of hiding it. Where we know how to steward it and appropriately enter it with one another. I was thinking about my brother this week. He's the best at this. The best. You know, every... uh, if you're a younger brother, I mean, I think you always, like me, look up to your older brother. But I was thinking um, years ago, he was on, a, on his way on a family vacation out east, and he was already driving for several hours when he got a call from one of his friends that his friend's 15-year-old daughter was tragically killed in a car accident. And I remember him telling me this. He says, Rod, the moment I heard that, it wasn't even a question. Turned the car around immediately. And for days, he and my uh, brother-in-law, Kevin Smith, just sat with this man. Do we do that? Do we even know how to do that? And part of it's because so many of us have been taught that you hide your pain and you don't wear your pain. And and we didn't read this this morning. We skipped right over it. But in chapter 3... Uh, This is Job's first lament, and and, and in this lament, I want you to read that sometime today or this week, because Job shows us the healthy, healthy way to grieve. It's with sackcloth. It's with ashes. You lament with friends. And I'll tell you, when you read what he says, I mean, this this thing in chapter 3, it's intense. Why, God? Why was I born? Why did you let me live? Why don't you just take my life? Why are you doing this to me? Does that make you uncomfortable? It's actually a very healthy and biblical response to suffering. 
You know, God can handle our questions. I don't care what they are. God can handle our wrestling with him. I mean, for crying out loud, he, he calls his people what? Israel. What does Israel mean? Struggles, wrestles with God. God loves a wrestling match. Wrestle with him. Why, God? How long? Why don't you even take my life? Why did you let me live? See, Job teaches us not only that it's, it, it's okay, but it's actually healthy to lament by asking the hardest questions about God. I mean, read the Psalms. This is why we love the Psalms, especially when we're in a place of pain, because commentators say as much as 60% of the Psalms are laments. The Bible is a real Raw, honest book. I'll tell you, when you read the Psalms and you read Job, you're going to see that the sufferer says some pretty hard things about God and hard things about God's world. And I know this feels offensive to some Christians. Some people say, like, how is this any different than what skeptics and cynics say about God? Read Job. Trust me, he says some some harsh things about God. But here's the difference between Job and the cynics and the Psalms and the skeptics. While they say hard things about God, Job and the psalmist are saying them to God. Their prayers. They're part of their prayers. We look at Psalm 13. Psalm 13 is such a great example of this. This is a Psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? How long, O God, look on me. I need an answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes. Or I will sleep in death, and my enemy will say I have overcome him, and my foes rejoice when I fall. I mean, that's just gut-wrenching honesty. But here's the thing. It's a prayer, and they never stop there. They always end with something like this, but I still trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Now, here's what happens when when you're a friend and you're sitting with someone who's in this place of lament. It's excruciatingly difficult to suffer silently with them. Because as, as they are crying out all their whys, what we're tempted to do is answer their whys, their whys, and give explanations. And that's exactly what Job's friends do here. They fall prey to this temptation. They want to explain to Job his pain. And that's why I want to say this right now. When when, when people are in pain, they, they really don't need answers, even though it sounds like they're asking for them. They they really don't need explanations. Really, all they need is you and your presence. Now, Eliphaz is the one who speaks first. 
If you look at chapter 4, he's very careful in how he steps into this. I mean, he starts off and kind of says, you know, Job, I can't help but speak here. And then he justifies his speaking by reminding Job how often Job has, has, has spoken in similar situations. And then the crux of what Eliphaz says to Job, and this will be repeated throughout all those other chapters that we didn't read, is found in verses 7 to 8. He says, Has the, have the innocent ever perished, Job? Have the righteous ever been cut off? And then he says, what a man sows is what a person reaps. You plant corn, Job, you get corn. You plant wheat, you get wheat. In other, Job, in other words, Job, you are reaping what you sow. If you're reaping bad, it's because you planted bad. If you're reaping trouble, it's because you, Job, have planted trouble. In fact, essentially what Eliphaz is doing is he's blaming Job for Job's suffering. Bildad essentially says the same thing. In Job 8, verse 20, he says, God does not reject a man of integrity, so why is he rejecting you? Nor does he help the wicked. Zophar is a little bit more couch, but he still says this, the same in Job eleven fourteen to 17. He says, repent, get the sin out of your life, and the sun will again shine on you. What's wrong with this counsel? In some ways, they're not completely wrong, are they? Well, it's the same thing that's wrong with our counsel to the sufferer when we say things like, well, it's just all for the best. Or it's all part of God's plan. Or God never sends people more adversity than they can handle. I mean, do you see how arrogant it is to think that we actually know God's plan? Or how foolish it is for us to think that we know the reason why someone is suffering, let alone why we even ourselves suffer. It is far more helpful, let alone truthful, for us to just admit, I don't know why this is happening to you. I don't know. See, we have to realize that suffering is complex, that that people are complex, that even God and his words sometimes are complex. And so to just give simplistic answers to the person in pain just shows that we have no idea what we are talking about. Now, this might be an overgeneralization, but I think right-leaning people see suffering simply as a moral spiritual problem. So their explanations will always be moral and spiritual. You need to pray more. You need to get the demons out of your life. You need to repent. Left-leaning people see see suffering as, as biochemical. You just need to take a pill. I, I can't believe how many of our kids today are, are taking pills 24-7, 365. Scary. 
Both are, are, are overly reductionistic. Both are, are, are way too simplistic. Neither takes into account the complexity of people and situations. Have you ever noticed how God treats people in pain? I'm telling you, he takes into account all this complexity. One of my favorite stories is Elijah. <laughs> The great man of God, the great prophet of God under a broom tree in a fetal position wishing to die. And who comes to him? Pre-incarnate Jesus. And what does he say to Elijah? Hey, Elijah, come on. What's your problem here, dude? Just buck it up. Repent of your sin. Let me cast out this demon of despair and let's get going again. Is that what he does? No, all he says is, Elijah, you're tired and exhausted. Arise and eat. And then there next to Elijah's head is a perfectly prepared banquet prepared by Jesus. And Elijah eats, eats it, and then just falls back asleep. And then a little bit later, Jesus wakes him up again and says, get up and eat some more, for the journey ahead of you is is too much for you, because Jesus knows exactly where Elijah is running. Elijah is like this little bullied kid who's running to his dad. He's running to God. He's going all the way to Sinai, which is a 40-day journey in the desert. And, And we think Elijah is so special because he can fast for 40 days when the text says it was the food that was special. Special that gave him strength for those 40 days. Then Elijah gets to Sinai. God gives Elijah exactly what he's looking for. It's a reproduction of the whole Sinai Exodus event. The mountain shakes, the wind blows, the ruach, the thunder and the lightning. But to Elijah's surprise, God isn't in all that. Instead, God comes to Elijah in a gentle whisper because God knows exactly what Elijah needs. Or what about John 11? When Jesus' good friend Lazarus dies, have you ever noticed the different ways in which Jesus interacts with Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha? I mean, Mary and Martha are two very different people. And Martha, the strong-willed one, just runs with all her might to Jesus because Jesus is four days late and she confronts him. Where were you? <laughs> Randy's laughing and I know why. I tell you, following the rules of Shiva, Jesus can now speak, Right? And he explains the hope of the resurrection. Your brother will rise again. Because Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. But Mary, the softer one, probably even a bit passive aggressive, she can't even approach Jesus because of her sadness, but also her anger. Like, where were you, master? And so Jesus has to invite her. And she comes sobbing and she just falls at Jesus' feet. And Jesus says nothing to her. All he does is weep with her. Because that's what Mary needs. 
And see, we are complex people, and suffering is a complex thing. And we need to respect the complexity of persons. Sometimes the thing that we need is just some rest and a good meal. And sometimes what we need is presence. And other times we just need gentle words of truth. And see, all of us have been on both sides of this coin. We've either been the comforter or the comfortee. This is one thing that my suffering has taught me, that the older I get, the less I talk. The less I try to explain things, the more I listen, the more I pray. And if I speak, it's usually just the words of God. Now, it's interesting that once Job's three friends get started in their counsel, I mean, they almost develop a diarrhea of the mouth because they can't stop. If you read these chapters, I mean, they just keep piling on this poor guy with things like Job 22, verse 5, where Eliphaz says, there's no end to your wickedness, Job. Then he starts accusing Job. I mean, he's literally making things up. He says, you've given no water to the weary. You've withheld bread from the hungry. You've sent widows away empty-handed. You you keep reading his other friends pile on uh, similar accusations. Repent, Job. You're a sinner. And see, everything Job's friends are saying is rooted in their theological framework. That if you're righteous, God will bless you. And if you're wicked, God will cause, cause you to suffer. Therefore, if you're suffering, Job, hello, dude, don't blame God. The blame is on you. I want to go down a rabbit trail for a second and just say some things about our theological systems. We need to be careful with them especially the ones that attempt to explain everything about everything. Because in the end, all you're doing is creating a strong straw man. And all you have to do is pull one piece of straw out of the straw man. What happens? The whole thing comes crashing down. And I'll tell you, it will mess the most with your theological system. It's not the real world. It's not even suffering. It's God's word itself. His word will always mess with our systems. Do you really think God can be explained by a system? You think God is that small that you can just put him in a theological box? See, Western theologians, they pull their hair out when they can't explain something because if we can't explain it, then we can't believe it. But I'll tell you, it's been fun to see the Jews because when a Jew comes to something they can't explain, you know what they do? They start dancing. (laughs) And you know what they say? They say, yes, God is bigger than my mind. He's bigger than my puny system. His ways are higher than my ways. That's why I think systematic theology sometimes is a Western, Western enterprise and not a biblical one. And see, Job's friends, they are hell-bent on, on protecting God in their theological system. As if God needs our protection. He's God for God's sakes, right? I think we do ourselves 
And not just ourselves, we do God, we do our kids, we do the world a great favor by putting down our neat and tidy systems and just start reading the Bible with the help of the Holy Spirit. No clean-cut systems that can explain God and his ways. His word will always mess with our systems. I don't care if it's Calvinist, Baptist, Wesleyan, Catholic. And it doesn't mean that we can't know anything or get a sense of God's ways because God has given us his word. He's given us minds. He's given us his spirit so we can get a strong sense of who God is. We can get a strong sense of his heart. We can get a strong sense of the path that he's laid out for us to walk, which includes right from wrong and the consequences of going our way instead of God's way. However, the Bible over and over and over again teaches my ways are higher than your ways. David in Psalm 139 says, your ways are too wonderful for me. They're too lofty. Who can attain them? Now let me say a word and pray for me right now about this particular system that Job's friends embrace. It's what we might call today the prosperity gospel, that God blesses the righteous and he punishes the wicked. And I want us to know right now that this isn't entirely unbiblical. I mean, all you have to do is read the book of Deuteronomy, because over and over again, God says, Obey me and love me with all your heart. Follow my decrees and I will prosper you and I'll bless you. But disobey and and trust yourself and and forsake me for foreign idols and I will send trouble. Read Psalm 1. The righteous prosper. The wicked perish. Or go to your New Testament in Galatians 6 verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, also shall he reap. One of the things we used to like to say around here, choose to sin, choose to suffer. Because all sin will lead to suffering. I would be mocking God to say otherwise. But that doesn't mean that all of our suffering is the result of personal sin. That's why in Psalm 73, the psalmist asks, why do the wicked prosper and why do bad things happen to good people? Answer, we don't know. And see, this is why you can't build an entire theology on, on just a few verses. I mean, the disciples had this, this theology. They see this blind man. They ask Jesus, who sinned? Who caused this blindness? This man sinned or his parents? Jesus says, neither. But for the glory of God. In fact, when you listen to Jesus in Matthew 5, 43 through 45, the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so you may be like your Father in heaven, who causes the sun to shine on both the good and evil, and sends rain. Rain in our world is a bad thing, but in that world it's Maim Kaim, living water. He sends that on both the just and the unjust. And this whole book is, uh, the book of Job is re to the whole prosperity gospel. Job is exhibit A that it is not God's gospel because in the end, while it promises so much, it hurts the hurting and it exalts the exalted, which is the antithesis to God's heart and it leaves people in a place of despair. 
In the last two weeks, I've counseled three people who have been in this place of utter despair as a result of believing in a prosperity gospel. I'll read you an email by one of the ladies I met with. I'm wondering if we can set up a time to talk. I think that God might be done with me. I spend so much of my time trying to understand the gospel, trying to hear his voice, trying to read his word, yet I feel like I fail, like I can't do the things he's asking. I can't speak in tongues. I can't prophesy. I can't discern his voice. And I'm envious of the joy of people that they supposedly have in the Lord. I can't enter into the worship. I'm so scared because I feel like if I die, I will go to hell because I can't do these things. I meet with people regularly and go to different churches. I ask God to help. I've I've attempted fasting with many failings. I've tried to do the things that God's word makes clear for me to do. But I don't sense myself being saved or closer to him as a result. Ideas have consequences. And that hurts me. And that's why there's only one person who's articulated when I feel so well about the prosperity gospel. No, I don't put this guy in a pedestal. But I want you to hear this. I don't know what you feel about the prosperity gospel, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, but I'll tell you what I feel about it, hatred. It is not the gospel. And it's being exported from this country to Africa and Asia, selling a bill of goods to the poorest of the poor. Believe this message, your pigs won't die. Your wife won't have miscarriages. You have rings on your fingers and coats on your back. That's coming out of America. The people that ought to be giving our money and our time and our lives instead selling them a bunch of crap called gospel. And here's the reason it is so horrible. When was the last time that any American, African, Asian ever said, Jesus is all satisfying because you drove a BMW. Never. They'll say, Jesus did do that? Yeah. Well, I'll take Jesus. That's idolatry. That's not the gospel. That's elevating gifts above giver. I'll tell you what makes Jesus look beautiful is when you smash your car and your little girl goes flying through the windshield and lands like dead on the street and you say through the deepest possible pain God is enough God is enough He is good He will take care of us He will satisfy us He will get us through this He is our treasure whom have I in heaven but you and on earth 
There's nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart and my little girl may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That makes God look right. As God. Do you believe that? Uh, not as giver of cars. Listen, not only is Job rebuke a prosperity gospel, he's also rebuked to a poverty gospel. A gospel that says all we need to do is sell everything and become poor. Because in both riches and poverty, in both prosperity and suffering, Job never says, I'm rich because I'm righteous, nor does he say, I've lost everything because of my sin. He says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be your name. And I want to end with this this morning. What gets gets Job through the pain? More than friends, as much as we need friends... Friends, at the end of the day, will not be enough. Sometimes they will let us down. But in Job 19, verse 24, this is what Job says. He, know, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. Most literally, he will stand on my grave and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Do you know what a redeemer is? It's someone who can reach into our brokenness and our emptiness and our hurt and our pain and who can buy our life back. Someone who can take everything that has gone wrong in our life and make it all right as if it never happened. And Job says, I know that my redeemer lives and one day he will stand upon my grave He will stand upon my life and he will make it all right. Think about it. Job's redeemer already came to earth once. He already brought us back to himself through his death and one day our redeemer will once again, he will stand on the earth, he will stand on your grave, he will stand on my grave and he will will make it all right. That's how we get through suffering. Let's pray. And God, this morning... There are people in this room who are rejoicing and who are prosperous and we bless you for them and for these seasons. You are good. And this morning there are some who are in deep pain in a season of loss and maybe tragedy. And we say, God, we we bless you. Because in the end, we know that you are our redeemer and that you live and that you're coming back and you're going to take everything that has gone wrong and you're going to make it all right.
Give us that hope today, Lord. Let that burn in our hearts. In Jesus' name.